The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves. And the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May. And then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your Pacer's success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Pacer's Podcast. Welcome back, listeners, to the Pre-Paces podcast. Dr. Sam Williams here, and we're back this week with another fantastic episode with Dr. Alex Thompson joining me as our expert guest. Alex is a consultant neurologist with a subspecialist interest in this week's topic of motor neurone disease. Alex was a fantastic guest for this neurology-themed episode, but before we get into the show, our usual shout-out to the legends who support the show on the Buy Me A Coffee page, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. Thank you to Shine, to Pratchy and Rob for their generous donations. And a massive thank you, as well as a big good luck message from us to Sandy, whose exam is coming up on the 1st of July. We've got everything crossed for you, Sandy. All the best for your exam. But for now, let's jump into this week's episode. Welcome back to the Pre-Paces podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sam Williams, and today we're covering another Paces station that's somewhat off the beaten track from our usual content. Some of you listeners may consider it a bit of a curveball if it came up in your exam, and that topic is motor neurone disease. Joining us today, I have another expert guest to help us navigate this topic. Dr. Alex Thompson is an honorary consultant neurologist at Oxford University Hospitals NHS Trust. He's also an MRC clinical scientist within the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Oxford. And his research extends far and wide in the MND sector. So we couldn't have anyone better placed to join us on the show today. So Alex, welcome. Hi, Sam. Thanks a lot for having me on. And Alex, I wonder if we can just start off with a bit of uh, background to yourself, a bit of a conversation about your uh, clinical practice and a bit of a background to the research you're conducting in this space. So if you could tell us a bit about your work with MND and, and your ongoing research. Sure. So as you said, I'm a clinician scientist. So I'm employed primarily by the university and funded by the MRC. And I do work both in MND, in the MND clinic and in general neurology. So I do a, a mix of MND clinics, general neurology clinics, and some time doing acute general neurology on calls. In terms of 
the research work that I do, it's really very much patient-facing research. Primarily, I work with biomarkers so or biofluid biomarkers using things like proteomics of CSF to try and understand heterogeneity of the disease. And I'm particularly interested in studying uh, people who carry uh, highly penetrant genetic variants that predispose to motor neuron disease. So looking both at people who have those variants and have motor neuron disease, but also their family members who are at high risk of developing motor neuron disease. Yeah, fantastic. And I'm sure genetics is something that we'll come on to discuss maybe towards the end of the podcast. So without further ado, let's get into our conversation on motor neuron disease. So Alex, if we if we start off with the absolute basics, how would you typically define motor neuron disease and what would you often find that characterises this condition? So motor neuron disease we recognise as a as a clinical syndrome primarily, and the classic features um, that we that we look out for or we listen out for in the history are that of painless progressive paralysis. So the three P's of MND. By that, really, by painless, we really mean there is no sensory involvement or no significant sensory involvement. Progressive, and that is the you know, absolutely characteristic. This is something that, that progresses gradually over time. And paralysis, it's weakness. The slight exception to that is that between a quarter and a third of patients will, will present with speech problems as the first presenting feature. Yeah, And that's typically slurred speech rather than changes in, in vocal quality, dysphonia or anything like that. Patients with onset in that bulbar territory with speech onset typically develop swallowing problems later. Yeah, So usually the presentation is first with speech problems and then followed by swallowing problems. But we really think of the core features as, as I say, progressive weakness, really, without sensory involvement. That's the story we're, we're looking for. And when we examine people, generally we're looking for a combination of upper and lower motor neuron signs occurring in the same body territory in a way that could not be explained by an alternative um, by an alternative diagnosis. So, you know, something like a structural lesion, for example. We'll talk a bit more later about the differential diagnoses, which really depends a bit on the, on the sort of region of the neurological system that you're, um, that you're looking at where the symptoms are. Um, but that, that, that's the absolute characteristic clinical examination feature you're looking for, combination of upper and lower motor neuron signs in the same territory. Fasciculations, something that you don't often see in paces, something that you don't often see even in the neurology clinic outside of the MND clinic. Fasciculation is something that gets talked about a lot in paces. You know, when you're preparing for, for the neurological examination, you're quite unlikely to see them. In motor neuron disease, generally, we see them in a fairly generalized way. So it's not, and, and you know, it's not just sort of one or two fasciculations. It's usually something a bit more diffuse than that, often over the shoulders. Tongue fasciculations are very difficult to call. Yeah? So tongue tremor is extremely common and can be uh, often, often misinterpreted as tongue fasciculations. So fasciculations, yes, very common in motor neuron disease, are not required. Yeah, for the diagnosis, muscle wasting. So that's a you know is a is a pretty hard motor, uh, low motor neuron sign that that really, except in fairly specific circumstances in motor neuron disease, you would expect to see muscle wasting. So if you've got someone with a motor problem and they don't have muscle wasting, I would be thinking about about other things. 
and then you know in terms of the upper motor neuron signs spasticity hyperreflexia which is a bit of a you know can be a bit of a soft sign if it's a young person um upgoing planters etc yeah fantastic and one of the things that i found during my research for the episode was the l escorial criteria for sort of positively diagnosing motor neuron disease are these criteria still used not really so they are primarily designed for the research setting and over the years there's been sort of in- incremental changes to them to try and make them more inclusive so the allosporial criteria divide the motor neuron disease diagnosis into possible probable laboratory supported definite and um at one time you had to have you know either probable or definite to be involved in clinical trials and actually it it wound up excluding a lot of people who clearly died of motor neuron disease but didn't meet the allosporial criteria so it's very heavily dependent on on emg they've been replaced now in favor of um of criteria called the gold coast criteria which basically has a much less stringent level of evidence that's required um and really points to progressive weakness in multiple body territories accompanied by appropriate physical signs of upper and lower motor neuron involvement that can't be explained by other by, by another cause brilliant and i thought one of the things which would be important just to outline before we start discussing our patient presentation is uh, the different types or different varieties of motor neuron disease. I should sort of underline this from the start to say this is probably advanced for paces, but it might be something which we just need to keep our uh, minds open for, particularly in our clinical practice. I wonder, uh, Alex, if you could just um, outline the maybe the more common forms of motor neuron disease, and then maybe we can discuss the, the slightly rarer varieties. So it's a slight subtypes of um, of MND is a slightly contentious issue, but I guess we sort of recognise that you you can ha- present with with progressive weakness and have an examination where you have pure upper low, uh, motor neuron signs or poor, pure lower motor neuron signs, but you still have MND, and for the most part, pathologically, it's the same disease. So the the, the sort of the, the more accurate clinico-pathological term is ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which encompasses the fact that you have muscle wasting due to lower motor neuron degeneration of the ventral horn spinal motor neurons, and lateral sclerosis, which is scarring of the lateral columns of the spinal cord, which is really the upper motor neuron, you know, degener- caused by degeneration of the upper motor neurons, which their cell bodies are in the in the um, motor cortex and they send projections down through the corticospinal tract into the spinal cord so that that is what what we think about as as, as really being motor neuron diseases is, is ALS you might hear terms like PMA which is progressive muscular atrophy which is one of these rarer um, or said to be one of these rarer forms if if you look look pathologically or using advanced imaging techniques at people with progressive muscular atrophy ie pure lower motor neuron signs without upper motor neuron signs they do have upper motor neuron involvement it's just clinically that you can't detect it yeah then at the other end of the spectrum so so you know that's the sort of pure people with pure lower motor neuron signs in the middle you have people with with ALS amyotrophic lateral sclerosis and then at the other end with pure upper motor neuron signs you have primary lateral sclerosis so that's no low motor neuron signs that one it's a bit harder to um to be quite so categorical so that behaves in a slightly different way 
it shares there are features it shares with with ALS and that it's a progressive pure motor phenotype but it moves much more slowly and it's unlike ALS it's probably not life limiting but the the bread and butter of what people will see that's common is ALS of course that doesn't necessarily mean it's common in paces as you already mentioned it's not common in paces and actually you know the people who go who, who patients who find their way into paces are often people who've got relatively stable problems so it may be that those rare people at the at either end of the spectrum are overrepresented in in paces the bottom line is i, d I wouldn't get bogged down with the nitty-gritty of that people might also have heard of terms like progressive bulbar palsy flail arm als so these are some of the um what we think of as sort of regionally isolated forms of the disease so progressive bulbar palsy is people who get onset with speech and then swallowing problems and the symptoms remain restricted there for sometimes several years before then progressing to affect the limbs. But, but really, for the most part, what people are, are likely to see in their practice is going to be bulbar onset ALS. Now, similarly, flail arm ALS is people who've got very lower motor neuron predominant upper limb involvement that can stay restricted to the upper limbs for quite a while before progressing, tends to progress more slowly than average. But again, I wouldn't get too bogged down. I would stick with motor neuron disease. That's really going to be ALS. We had a, a, a brief chat before we started uh, recording and we were talking about the by the time that a patient's actually made its way to one of your clinics, Alex, that the suspicion's already been raised of motor neuron disease. So although you might receive the patients sort of secondhand with, a, with an existing suspicion, I wonder if you can give us an insight into the types of typical manifestations or, or first presenting symptoms that these patients first notice, which leads them to the person who then refers them on to you. Yeah, so really they predominantly fall into people who've got limb weakness or bulbar weakness. So the limb weakness, one of the most common presentations is a foot drop. You know, that is a reasonably common presentation on the neurological station of paces is someone with a foot drop. So it needs to be there in your in your thought processes. The other common presentations are hand weakness or arm weakness. And then thirdly, it's the progressive um, speech followed by swallowing difficulties. And probably the main differential that people think of in the context of, of speech difficulties, I suppose in paces, you don't necessarily have the benefit of a progressive history. But the other things you might think about would be myasthenia gravis. Actually, you're, you're pretty unlikely to see someone who's got significant speech and swallowing problems due to myasthenia gravis in paces because it would suggest that they've not been adequately treated or something, lo something like a stroke or some cranial nerve um, involvement, you know, some, some problem involving the lower cranial nerve. So they're, they're pretty uncommon. The key thing about the, 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 the bulbar presentations, again, is that it's dysarthria rather than any kind of language problem. And dysphagia accompanies the dysarthria, but usually follows a few months behind. And I guess one of the things in your history taking would be, which may uh, differentiate MND from some of those differentials, is the fact that MND would you find that the symptoms are more or less constant in nature? There's not sort of a waxing and waning of the, of the severity of those symptoms? Well, for the purposes of paces, yes. People's symptoms do fluctuate, you know, so day to day and people, people fatigue, but not in the sort of sense of the fatigability that we think of with myasthenia gravis. But, but it's not impossible to have some fluctuation. But for the purposes of paces where you're going to be 
doing a history from an actor, um, I wouldn't. You're right to say that significant fluctuations not going to be uh, a feature. Yeah, I feel sometimes with conditions like this is is that you're trying to make black and white out of what is actually very grey, and that in in clinical practice it's much more difficult. And you're trying to yeah, you're trying to make black and white out of what is actually a very uh, grey, vague history. And I guess the other thing is is what demographic of patients gets MND. So are there any sort of ages of patients where we say okay, well, very unlikely to be MND in a patient of this age. I mean, it can happen at any age, but. The, the median age of onset is about 63. So it tends to be people in middle aged and, and older. So, you know, people in their, in their 20s, very unlikely. 30s, pretty unlikely. 40s, still pretty unlikely. So it's more people in their sort of 50s to 70s, I would think, and maybe a bit older that, that, that you might encounter. Yeah. And uh, we talked about uh, genetics a bit earlier in the show, and, and part of every history taking is going to be the family history. So is there... Well, I mean, there must be because you're doing research on it. But in terms of genetic heritability, what's relevant in terms of patients, in terms of uh, a family history or taking a family history from these patients? Yeah, so most people with motor neuron disease won't have a family history. Uh, About 10% will have a relevant family history. And that is a family history of motor neuron disease, uh, by and large. For some genes, though, for actually the most common gene that causes sort of monogenically inherited inherited dominant motor neuron disease in the UK, it also causes frontotemporal dementia. Yeah. So we do see families where people may have had motor neuron they may have family members with motor neuron disease or family members with frontotemporal dementia or um, or both. And the key things about frontotemporal dementia are that it tends to be earlier in onset than Alzheimer's disease. And we think of Alzheimer's disease, you know, as the sort of archetypal dementia, which is memory led, whereas frontotemporal dementia is often has early behavioral involvement. And the cognitive changes are, 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 are not those of, of forgetfulness. It's more those of changes in thinking, being becoming more rigid in thinking and that sort of thing. And I think one of the things which might be helpful when you talk about this progressive painless paralysis, sometimes it can be helpful to think about the uh, pattern of motor weakness. But am I I right in saying that there's actually it it doesn't tend to fit a myotomal pattern of weakness and it can be more or less any pattern of weakness affecting any any limbs and any muscles? Well, the key um, thing which you've sort of helpfully prompted me into is that typically it begins focally yeah and then spread spread apparently spreads out so what in terms of the 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 history is let's say someone with a foot drop they will begin with a with a foot drop in one foot it will gradually progress they'll begin to get involvement of the proximal leg muscles and um, then the symptoms will move either to the uh, ipsilateral upper limb or the contralateral lower limb so it tends to it gets more severe in the area where it started and then it spread spreads to sort of anatomically contiguous areas by and large it doesn't always do that but that's that's generally what happens so it's worth bearing in mind that it's it's usually not symmetrical at least early on yeah and then as part of the extended history as as well we'd often ask about past medical history are there any particular medical conditions that are associated with MND that might it raise your uh, or lower your threshold for suspicion of, of MND? 
Not really, no, is the, is the short answer. Um, so actually people who develop motion neuro disease tend to have been extremely fit and healthy prior to um, onset of the disease. There are possible associations for a few diseases. So um, some things that increase your cardiovascular risk also increase your risk of motor neuron disease like high LDL cholesterol, but not at a level that is useful in, in terms of working out who's got motor neuron disease or not. Similar sort of question in a way, but are there any social factors? You know, our listeners are going to be routinely asking about smoking, alcohol, work, occupation, things like that. Are there any modifiable risk factors uh, that might be helpful in, in the extended history, which would, again, lower your suspicion? No. <laughs> As I said, there are, people are often very fit and, fit and healthy, um, done physical jobs or athletic, but, you know, not, not, not anything that you can really usefully use to guide you. I, I mean, I guess the, the value of that to the listeners will be, obviously, you're going to be taking this history in a systematic and comprehensive way to demonstrate to the examiners your ability to do that. But again, it's going to be for completeness. And realistically, if this is your suspicion that they have or within your differential is motor neuron disease, uh, you, you may not expect anything significant to be found in your extended history, maybe with the exception of the family history. Yeah, well, I mean, I you sort of wonder whether there's anything that might particularly put you off in the past medical history. And I don't know that there is other than, say, you know, someone presenting with some limb problems and they've got a history of spinal disease in the past or something like that that might put you off. But I don't I don't really think there are any big spoilers either. We're going to sort of change tack very slightly. Uh, the PACES format, as we know, is changing. The clinical consultations are going to be prolonged from uh, the eight minutes to now 15 minutes. So you may have more time if this comes up in a clinical consultation station. You may have more time to perform a full neurological examination. Alex, you touched on a few of the things with regards to fasciculations and uh, power earlier. But I wonder if we can just, if we go through the neurological examination in its entirety, or as much as, as is relevant for this condition, we can signpost the listeners to the types of things which they should be looking out for if they come to do a, a neurological examination on these patients. So generally speaking, when you see these patients and come to examine them, what are the sorts of things which you start off by looking for? So as with any uh, all of the neurology examinations that you do for paces, you know, the key part of the examination really is inspection. And some of that is standing back and just trying to sort of pick up and uh, as you will uh, no doubt do if it's someone who you're going to be examining their lower limbs, you want to be able to see them walk. Yeah, you want to have a, a good look to see what aids they're using. A, a hint that someone has got a foot drop off a bat is if they have an ankle foot orthosis, okay? And they're very commonly used in people with motor neurone disease to help support the foot and, and aid with walking, yeah? And often people will have bilateral ankle foot orthoses. You know, that's probably the first thing. As I say, fasciculations are really, you know, if you're seeing a lot of fasciculations, there aren't many, many other things. If you've got a lot of fasciculations and weakness, then you'd have to be pretty suspicious that, that, that this is motor neuron disease. And so the good places to look for circulations, I think, as I already mentioned, you know, thinking across, particularly across the shoulders, deltoids, I find it useful to get a good amount of 
direct light on the limbs to be able to see, to be able to pick out for circulation. So something like uh, you know light over the bed, where you're getting good direct light and you're really showing shadows so you can see that relief. And then when I'm examining someone looking for motor neurone disease, I really start at the top and work my way down. There are a couple of sort of subtle upper motor neuron signs, or you know you might refer to them as frontal release signs, that, that can be useful because part some, sometimes what you're trying to do is show evidence of upper motor neuron damage when there may not be any to, to see in the limbs, for example. So one thing that we do that's quite useful in the MND clinic is to do a glabella reflex, which is generally a non, non-favored technique in paces, but a gentle tap with the tendon hammer to the lower part of the forehead. So what should happen is the patient might blink the first couple of times you do it, but they should accommodate to that and then stop. And that's a subtle, probably upper motor neuron sign, just a sign that there's something centrally going on. The other sign, so, so then generally I move on to the lower part of the face and I'll have a look at the tongue. And you want the patient to open their mouth with their tongue resting in the floor of their mouth, shine some light in, have a good look, looking for fasciculations, but recognizing that they're very hard to distinguish from just a tremor of the tongue. Uh, also looking for wasting of the tongue and then get, asking the patient to protrude the tongue, turn it, move it from side to side quickly, looking for slowness of movement. So people should be able to move the tongue quickly from side to side, looking for slowness. And then I move on to, to examining for a jaw jerk. Yeah. So again, this is another useful upper motor neuron sign where you might not have upper motor neuron signs in the limb, but if you see it there, it, it's, it's, it's um, uh, helpful. Yeah. So the way you do that is you ask the patient to just relax their mouth open so slack-jawed, pop a finger on their, on their chin and then attack with the tendon hammer and you're looking for contraction of the master muscles and closing of the mouth. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a bit of a, bit of a sort of A-level sign, but it's, it's, it, it's, it's quite a useful one in practice. Another thing that is easy to overlook but is quite a useful sign for a diagnosis of motor neuron disease is neck muscle weakness. So, you know, if you're thinking something, if you're wondering in your differential about whether this could be cervical spine disease, so spondylotic uh, myeloradiculopathy, and um, they've got weakness in their limbs and a bit of wasting in their hands, they shouldn't have neck muscle weakness because of the, the innovation being, you know, cranial nerve territory. So that's a useful thing to look for. Then I move on to the limbs, have a good look for wasting and fasciculations, feel for the tone, looking for spasticity looking at the pattern of wasting, examining power and reflexes in the upper limbs as well. And, that, you know, with the reflexes, you're looking for. So I think most often in the upper limbs, in people with ALS, you will see brisk reflexes. If there are more prominent lower motor neuron features, you might see absent reflexes. But generally, it's, it's more likely to be brisk and there might be spread of the reflexes to the hands, for example. In the lower limbs, similarly, you know, looking for wasting, tone. I would say more often in the lower limbs, the ankle jerks are absent uh, of key importance to look at the plantar responses as well. So, you know, if you've got someone who's got a flaccid looking foot drop, low motor neuron looking foot drop, and they've got an upgoing plantar on the same side, then you'd be quite suspicious that that might be motor neuron disease rather than a L5 radiculopathy or a common perineal. Yeah, absolutely. I guess moving on to the other parts of the examination, my guess would be is that coordination, typically the coordination isn't affected, but your examination may be affected by the fact that they may be weak. Yeah, absolutely. And and sensation. Now, it, there there are very few alwayses or nevers in, in medicine, but I, it's always been one of those things where you say there's sensation is never affected in motor neurone disease. But 
this is your opportunity to myth bust if, if you're able to. I wouldn't say never, but I would say if you see sensory involvement, then you need to be thinking twice. Yeah. And and one thing in PACE is that they never forget dual pathology that, you, you know, patients can have as many conditions as they damn well please. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think you have obviously got to be thinking a bit about your differential for mixed upper and lower motor neuron signs. Well, I think that's a brilliant segue to take us into our differential diagnosis. So as uh, as we've already said, it's, it's unusual and there are only a, a set few things which may uh, cause you to observe mixed upper and lower motor neuron signs. It, and more or less, it is pathognomonic of MND. But Alex, can you can you give us any differential diagnoses and maybe um, any clues either in the history or the examination which might which might point us to more towards these differentials rather than uh, a motor neuron disease? So, so probably the number one differential that causes diagnostic problems is cervical spine disease. Yeah, so spondylotic myeloradiculopathy. So, someone where you've got wear and tear change in their cervical spine it's causing spinal cord compression and nerve root compression that can give you upper and lower motor neuron signs in the upper limbs upper motor neuron signs in the lower limbs and so that that can cause diagnostic confusion that really you expect to see sensory involvement in that condition so not having sensory involvement would make you wonder about whether it's motor neuron disease you know i mentioned a couple of other things so one of the principles in the neurological examination that you can apply is trying to get above the level of the lesion. Yeah. And you can do that with the reflexes. So this is partly where the, where the Georgia comes in. So if you've got someone who you think, well, could it be motor neuron disease? Could it be, could it be cervical spine disease, but they've got a Georgia that would push you more in the direction of um, thinking that this is motor neuron disease. And again, neck weakness. So cervical spine disease shouldn't cause neck weakness. So that, that, that I think is the number one situation where, confusion is likely to arise there are a couple of rare pure motor neurological diseases that um, that we encounter in in the mnd clinic mostly they're extremely rare so there are some immune neuropathies that can sometimes be bona fide motor neuron disease mimics something called multifocal motor neuropathy extremely rare immune uh, neuropathy that condition um, aside from being much rarer than motor neuron disease the age of the typical patient tends to be younger. The weakness tends to be very focal. They shouldn't have upper motor neuron signs. They might have fasciculations, but we'd expect them to be focal. Typically, it involves the upper limbs and causes a finger drop. So it's often this sort of finger drop of the middle two fingers, but that's the classical presentation. You don't expect to really see significant wasting in that condition. And you can, you know, you can have other immune neuropathies that can mimic it as well. So, so that is a pure low motion neuron disease, multifocal motion neuropathy or conduction block neuropathy is it's sometimes known as. There are other lower motor neuron mimics. So there are some hereditary neuropathies, motor neuropathies. They tend to be distal, tend to be symmetrical. They're very slowly progressing. They're pure low motor neuron. But, you know, and I'd be, I'd be very surprised if you encountered that. But, you know, thinking more about the sort of something that looks like shark and Mary teeth, but without sensor involvement. Is that the same as um, Kennedy's disease? So it's not the same as Kennedy's disease, but Kennedy's disease, I mean, Kennedy's disease is a motor neuronopathy. So it's, it, I, I'm not sure that you'd really be criticised for, for saying that someone with Kennedy's has, has motor <laughs> neuron disease. It, it is an inherited disease. 
it affects men. It's X-linked, and it tends to be it tends to be onset of a similar age to people who develop motor neuron disease. So it's mostly men in their sort of fifties and sixties who have onset. Features that might point you towards thinking that something's Kennedy's is that tremor is often present. You can have a tremor in motor neuron disease. Ten percent of people with motor neuron disease will have a tremor. Gynecomastia is another feature that, that, that points towards Kennedy's disease. But actually, often we will think of Kennedy's disease in somebody who has a relatively symmetrical, slower, slowly progressive motor neuron disease, and we will quite often test for it. So there's no, there's no shame in thinking of Kennedy's disease and testing for it. But yeah, I guess it has overlaps, really, with, uh, with those hereditary neuropathies. You could see that you might come a cropper with, with some muscle things. So I've occasionally, when I've taught on PACES courses, seen people who have mistaken myotonic dystrophy for um, motor neuron disease. But the key things, big differences are, so myotonic dystrophy, type 1 myotonic dystrophy, typically is dis, you know, predominantly distal weakness, but there isn't much wasting in that condition. You have myotonia, which is obviously the hallmark feature, and you have all the other features of myotonic dystrophy, you know, the, 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 the typical facial appearance, ptosis, etc., which you don't see in motor neuron disease, and you don't get any upper motor neuron signs. It's very, myotonic dystrophy is very symmetrical in terms of the pattern of the weakness. And there are, you know, there are a few other hereditary myopathies and things that, that you know, where you might think about them in your differential and it's not unreasonable to, to consider when you've got a pure motor phenotype to think about whether something is muscle or you know the in terms of the localization whether it's a sort of anterior horn cell problem or a or a muscle problem but you know myopathies tend to be much more symmetrical by and large they're proximal but there are some rare distal ones um, and you don't see significant wasting um, most, most of the time with those myasthenia we've kind of touched on already You'd think of that more as a mimic if, you're, if you've got someone with, with problems in the bulbar territory. As I mentioned, if someone's got significant dysarthria, then uh, I'm not sure that it's entirely appropriate for them to be in paces if they've got mycene and they should probably be in hospital having some treatment or something. <laughs> um, but, you know, the other clues would to, to look for are, again, ptosis, which might be variable, or diplopia, so, I'm, you know, any eye movement problems. Um, the pattern of weakness and, of course, the hallmark of fatigability that you see with myasthenia. Yeah, absolutely brilliant run through of all of the possible differential diagnosis for motor neuron disease. And uh... probably a couple more, actually. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, yeah. So while, we haven't while, finished. while we sort of think about it, there are uh, there are some pure upper motor neuron things as well. So hereditary spastic paraparesis, you might think of, you know, that's, again, someone middle age, slowly progressive, pure upper motor neuron spastic paraparesis. And then some of the more weird and wonderful spastic paraparesis. So, you know, conceivably primary progressive MS or something like that could cause a progressive paraparesis. Adrenoleukodystrophy, which is a, there is a sort of small print one, but I think nobody in paces would be expected to know. Fantastic. And one other thing, I guess, when you're talking about muscle problems, one of those which I came across as a possible is inclusion body myositis as well. It's more of a muscle problem than a nerve problem, but would that fit into it anywhere? Yeah, no, so that's a very good thing to raise and actually can cause diagnostic difficulties. So IBM, again, is very rare. Uh, the typical, so common symptoms with that are foot drops. So people do get foot drop and, and, and thigh muscle weakness with that. It's slowly progressive. The really characteristic features, so, you know, again, you're going to be thinking about you shouldn't have upper motor neuron signs with IBM. You shouldn't have major muscle wasting with IBM, but you're allowed a bit of muscle wasting. The key... Um, 
area you get weakness, which is fairly typical or even specific to IBM, is we you get weakness of the long finger flexors. Yeah. So if you have pronounced weakness of finger flexion without accompanying weakness elsewhere in the distal upper limbs, that that is a red flag for for IBM. But you know, again, that's a, a disease where you even think about it. I think you're doing pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. It's difficult to uh, it is difficult to fit all of these things into different boxes. But as as we say, naming them in your differential will just demonstrate to the examiners that you've got an understanding of the of the broad range of of conditions which can lead to this this type of presentation. And uh, I should just add in if if listeners haven't already listened to the previous episodes, episodes twenty six and thirty of this podcast, where we talk about myasthenia gravis and myotonic dystrophy respectively go back and listen to those in conjunction with this episode and you'll have a, a, a fantastic overview of the the types of presentations leading to motor neuropathies it's that point in the show that i mentioned past test but only if they have a video which complements the topic of the podcast episode it shouldn't surprise you to hear me say that of course past test have neurology station videos of exemplar cases of motor neurone disease patients which perfectly complement this episode of the podcast so to get access just click the link labeled past tests in the show notes but for now let's get back to this week's episode so after you've examined your patient you will be expected to discuss the investigations with the examiner we, we will have talked about our differential diagnoses and we'll have to talk about the investigations as well and it's going to be heavily dependent on the exact signs elicited during the exam and I guess it, when you're maybe slightly short of time in your presentation it's important to narrow it down to the most seminal investigations so Alex if the if the candidates have to name only a few investigations what what investigations do you think would be the most specific and sensitive for motor neurone disease? Well, so really the investigations, if you suspect motion neuron disease, the investigations you're going to get, you do are going to be mainly directed at um, excluding any plausible alternatives. So if someone has got upper limb weakness, uh, then it would be very reasonable to do an MRI scan of their cervical spine. If they've got lower limb weakness, an MRI scan of their lumbar spine, generally, you know, in most circumstances. Um, and, you know, if they've got bulbar problems, then you might think about doing uh, imaging their brain. EMG is really thought of in the sort of diagnostic workup for, for motion neurone disease. It has two purposes. So, again, it's excluding things that could plausibly look like motor neurone disease. So there you might be thinking about something like myasthenia. So you're looking for evidence of decrement on EMG. You might do a single fiber EMG to look for more subtle signs of myasthenia. But, you know, it's, it's not very often that myasthenia really is a plausible mimic for most neurone disease. So with EMG, they can look for, uh, and nerve conduction studies, they can look for some things like the immune neuropathies. So they can get clues about that. They can look for evidence of muscle disease. So you mentioned IBM. An EMG is, is used as a diagnostic, you know, as a sort of positively diagnostic tool in motor neurone disease as well. The issue is that the sensitivity is, is quite poor. Um, and it's really EMG, so it's a needle EMG. And what you're looking for is evidence of lower motor neuron dysfunction that you may not be able to detect clinically is the, is the, sort of, is the kind of main thing. 
it can be helpful in even beyond that, you know, in, in areas where you can see low motor neuron dysfunction, it can be helpful in giving you a bit more information about the anatomical location of that. But we mainly use it to exclude mimics and to show evidence of uh, low motor neuron involvement where we're not seeing it. So and you're looking for evidence of denervation. So that is a manifest of spontaneous activity within the motor nerves and the muscle end plates. And then re-innovation, which is changes in the morphology of the mus muscle action potentials that happen because when motor neurons die and no longer innervate muscles, surrounding motor neurons will branch out to innervate those muscle fibers that have been that have been sort of left. And what that does is it changes the morphology of the um, of the muscle action potential or the motor unit action potential more accurately. Um, to make it look more disorganized. Probably slightly advanced for paces, but still, you know, fantastic. Definitely ridiculously advanced for paces and totally unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so the, the, the two-word answer is MRI scan, EMG. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Great. Are any blood tests helpful? Again, in sort of maybe not for making a positive diagnosis, but for excluding other diagnoses? Yeah, so, you know, it's all a bit A-level, really, but in terms of... So CK is sometimes is, is, is mildly elevated in motor neuron disease. Yeah. And you might think about that with muscle diseases. It's not very helpful in IBM because it's often modestly elevated, if at all, in IBM. So it's, it's not really useful in that context. Some of the, the immune neuropathies are associated with monoclonal bands and with specific uh, antibodies. So you might be testing for those. You know, in in future, probably you will be able to do testing for things like neurofilament proteins, which are axonal cytoskeletal proteins that go very high in motor neuron disease, but are not really terribly useful as a diagnostic test. Brilliant. So then moving on from our investigations, we'll go on to talk about the management of these patients. And this is once diagnosis has been confirmed of motor neuron disease, maybe you've got enough clinical evidence or, and supportive investigations which support your your diagnosis so alex what's the mainstay of management of these patients with motor neuron disease so it's an exemplar of multidisciplinary management so you know this is a disease that we can't um cure or really significantly slow down so it's managing it's managing symptoms and enabling people to to live well with the disease so key things to know, there is one disease modifying medication to treat motor neuron disease that is Riliazole. It has a very small life prolonging effect in motor neuron disease um, of about three months. So prolongs life by about three months on average. Then other than that, it's thinking about the problems that motor neuron disease causes. So uh, helping with mobility, aids to deal with upper limb dysfunction, communication aids, uh, ankle foot orthoses and that sort of thing as we talked about. Big kind of topics in, in management of motor neuron disease are nutritional management. And that is because people with motor neuron disease lose weight. Some of that may be because they develop swallowing difficulty, but sometimes it's, it's less simple than that. It may be to do with hypermetabolism, which is a feature of motor neuron disease. So nutritional management in terms of getting people to, to eat more, take on more calories, but also um, using gastrostomy as a means to provide nutritional supplementation or, or even all of someone's nutrition, typically if they've got weakness in the bulbar territory and, and having difficulty swallowing. 
So that, you know, that's a big topic. And then the second thing is <clears throat> non-invasive ventilation. So BiPAP as a means to treat hypoventilation. So as motion neuron disease progresses, it eventually involves the diaphragm. And that tends to cause, uh, I mean, really it's, it's a symptomatic management. So it tends to cause nocturnal hypoventilation, sleep fragmentation, the, and then the, the sorts of symptoms that you would associate with um, OSA. So people are drowsy in the daytime, they may have morning headaches, uh, feel generally a bit lousy. Um, and we use, yeah, we use, we use BiPAP uh, to, to help with that. Yeah, brilliant rundown of the management of MND. And one question I think would be really helpful for you to answer, most candidates would have an idea of, of Riluzol and they'd know that that's the only licensed medication. But is it offered to all patients or at what, at what point are you able to offer patients Riluzol? Yeah, so we offer it to everyone. Um, the evidence suggests the earlier you take it, the better. Um, the only things you really need to know, so most people are fine taking it. A few people, small, uh, you know, maybe 10% of people will get side effects. You have to um, monitor liver function tests and um, full blood count. Occasionally people get uh, leukopenia or uh, raised transaminases with Rilizol that mandates altering the dose or stopping it. Yeah, brilliant. And I guess one thing which is, again, going to be important for these patients is discussions of ceiling of care. I guess that's something which can be done during uh, an outpatient encounter or as a as an MDT discussion with the family involved as well, because I, as far as I can tell, the the prognosis depend is dependent on the progression. But again, it's 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 a pretty unfavourable prognosis usually. Yeah, so it's a um, it's a difficult disease. There's no question about that. As you say, the um, prognosis, by you know, by which we mean how long people live with motor neuron disease. Well, it varies enormously. So the average or the median um, survival from first symptoms is about three years. Yeah. But 20% of people will live beyond five years, 10% will live beyond 10 years. So uh, some people do have relatively long survival um, with motor neuron disease. And yeah, that, you know, they are clearly important things um, to be thinking about. And it's generally, it's a, it's a sort of gradual conversation around that. Predicting how long someone with motor neuron disease will live is difficult. And there are a few factors that, that, that sort of come into play. A big one of those is the rate at which the disease is progressing. That tends to not change within an individual. So well, that varies a lot from person to person. If you've got rapidly progressing disease, it tends to continue to progress rapidly. If you've got slowly progressing disease, it, it progresses slowly. Um, and then there are other features that feed in as well. So, you know, people who are older tend to have more aggressive disease. If it starts in the bulbar territory, it tends to move a bit more quickly. So, you know, there, there, are, there are a few other things that feed in. Obviously, if you have early involvement of the diaphragm, that's a negative factor as well. We've, we've talked about the variable progression of the condition. And uh, one thing which may come into uh, our listeners' thinking is, particularly regarding the family, you mentioned about 10% of cases have a heritable or hereditary component. How should we communicate with the families of these patients with regard to testing for them? And how often, in your experience, do they want some sort of uh, advanced testing for in advance of any symptoms that they may exhibit? Uh, I'm sure 
you can guess that you're sort of getting into slightly controversial um, areas where there's a lot of there's a lot of detail. The short so the short answer is that just dealing with your last point, if people want pre-symptomatic testing, it's done through a clinical genetics service. Yeah, because they have to have appropriate counselling in place um, before the testing is done, before the results are received, and they it needs to be clear that they've got adequate support afterwards. So that's the sort of pre-symptomatic testing question, which is actually a bit sort of downstream and again, definitely not PACE's fodder. Um, in terms of genetic testing for people with motor neuron disease, it's offered to all patients now in, in most clinics, I think, or at least discussed um, with all patients. So we know that about 10% of people will have a family history. Of those 10%, we can identify the specific gene that's caused the problem in about two thirds. If we test everybody with motor neuron disease without a family history, probably 5% of those will identify one of those same genes as abnormal, so a causative gene, even where there's an absent family history. That may be because you know they've had a parent die at a young age and it's obscured the history, or they're estranged, or some of these genes don't manifest in everyone. So it may be that they're They've had a parent who's lived till old age and has never got the disease but has carried the gene. So they probably have incomplete penetrance, quite a few of these genes. It, this is where it gets really complicated. But last year there was a... Um, so, so there are trials going on of targeted gene therapies for ALS. And there was a publication last year of, of, of a particular one. I don't know, you may or may not want to include this in your podcast. But, um, but the, uh, there was a trial of a drug called Tofacin, which is for a... Um, which is an antisense oligonucleotide therapy for a particular genetic form um, caused by um, variants in a gene called SOD1. And the outcome of the trial was interesting because they didn't meet their primary objective of slowing disease progression, but they showed that the levels of neurofilament proteins, which are very high in motor neuron disease and are very closely related to how aggressive the disease is, dropped substantially. So this company that produced the drug are now seeking licensing on the basis of this. Yeah, There is some clinical data to suggest it works as well, so it's probably just that the trial was too short to detect the clinical effect of the, of the drug, and it's, it's gone forward for, for consideration for approval. And is becoming available through an early access program with the, with the pharmaceutical company. And because of this, a lot of people are wanting testing, genetic testing, to see if they have that gene. So clearly this is not anything that needs to be, that people really need to be aware of for the purposes of PACES. This is, you know, super specialized neurology. Um, but it's, it's something that's driving a lot of genetic testing in motor neuron disease at the moment. So over and above understanding risk, this is prompting quite a lot of genetic testing. This probably only accounts for something like one to 2% of patients with motor neuron disease in the UK. Yeah, so it's the second most common motor neuron disease causing gene in the UK. For the other genes, for one of the other genes, there is there are trials of treatment going on. Um, for the others, there's there's not much going. Uh, well, there there aren't trials going on that I'm aware of. But anyway, I, probably you don't need that full bit in your podcast i would think well maybe not but you know i think the 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 important bit is that there there is always some clinical crossover with with this you know we're not 
whilst we you know focus on paces towards the end there's always a bit of clinical crossover and that's sort of where a lot of the interest comes because you know there's going to be some people listening who you know may well be interested in neurology and they and they want that little bit of extra you know so i mean the 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 um well so a couple of things to say one one is that this is this is a massive deal right this is a disease that has un, until this really has been untreatable okay and suddenly they've got this treatment and um it looks like it's having a pretty significant effect on people so you know that is a massive deal and whether or not you know if you go outside of sod1 motor neuron disease into uh sporadic motor neuron disease you know non-genetic motor neuron disease then it's it's a massive deal there as well because even though the drug is not going to work in those people it shows that this is a disease that we can treat effectively yeah we just have to find how to um but but i think so i think that's pretty important i actually think Rilizole, even though it's pretty crap in terms of how effective it is the fact you know this is the only until you know the the recent um alzheimer's trials it was the only neurodegenerative disease where there was a disease modifying treatment so again you know suggesting that for across neurodegenerative diseases that actually there is something useful that, that that we could do and admittedly up until now it's not been a huge amount yeah fantastic so alex just are there any last thoughts or comments about mnd anything you want the listeners to take home as you know the the, the key take-home messages from today's episode i think the I almost come back to the things we said right at the start, which is typical history, painless, progressive paralysis, yeah, painless, progressive weakness or slurred, you know, or progressive speech problems, dysarthria, is where you really need to think about it. And you're looking for, you're looking for clear cut physical signs that tell you about upper and lower motor neuron dysfunction in the absence of sensory involvement. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Listeners, that is just about all the time we have for this week's show. That only leaves us to give huge thanks to Dr. Alex Thompson, honorary consultant neurologist at Oxford University Hospitals, for joining us on the show today. So, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thanks a lot for having me along. And, listeners, that's the end of another show. Please don't forget to like, follow and subscribe to the show or leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We always love to hear from you, so give us a shout on our Twitter. It's at prepacespodcast or via the website, prepacespodcast.com. And if you really want to go above and beyond, support the show, it's at buymeacoffee.com slash prepacespodcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Dr. Sam Williams, and we will see you next time on the Pre Paces Podcast. <laughs>